Good evening. How you doing? Good. Doing good. Tonight we are going to talk about sin. And so I want to invite you for the next 30 minutes or so to just lean in. Uh, tonight is not going to be an easy talk uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a necessary one. And so if you could, with me, just open your ears and open your heart to receive what the Word of God has to say to us, I think it's going to be helpful though it might be hard to hear. This is the RMS Titanic. I've been told that these pictures and historical illustrations are the thing, so I just keep doing them. Is that all right with you guys? Okay. This is the Titanic. It sailed in 1912. It was 880 feet long. It was 90 feet wide, and it was seven stories high. When it set out from its maiden voyage from Southampton in England, headed for New York City, it was the largest seafaring vessel that the world had ever seen. Now, we all know how it ended, but what amplifies the tragedy of hitting that iceberg and sinking and so many people dying is that they knew the icebergs were there and they knew that they were dangerous, but they just kept sailing. And then what makes it even worse is not only did they just keep sailing, but even long before they had sailed, they, they couldn't find a way to imagine that a vessel this large and this impressive would ever even need a thing like lifeboats and so there was capacity for 1,200 people on the lifeboats, but there were 3,300 passengers. And the reason I tell you all that is to tell you this, that danger, danger is always more dangerous when it is misunderstood and underestimated. If you do not accurately and appropriately face up to the gravity of the danger that faces you, you will be much worse off for it. And that's why on a night like tonight, it is so important that we talk about this reality of sin. Because I do not want you to misunderstand or underestimate the danger and the destruction that sin poses to you. And so we're going to spend just a few minutes talking about sin from the book of Daniel. And by the end of this night, even if that word to you right now feels like a religious word or a confusing word or a word that just generally to you means bad stuff, but you don't have much beyond that, I want you to walk away tonight with a crystal clear understanding of what sin is and why it's dangerous. And so the way that we're going to do it is we're going to... We're going to march through a few different sections of Daniel. 
We've been seeing, as is so brilliantly retold in the narrative that we're watching at each session, we've been seeing how the Daniel figure and Nebuchadnezzar keep going back and forth in this interchange where Daniel uh, is given favor by God to interpret dreams and to have wisdom and discernment, and Nebuchadnezzar continues to respond with favor towards him and his God. And at the very end of chapter 4, Daniel makes this plea, this request of King Nebuchadnezzar, this ruler of the Babylonian Empire. And in Daniel 4.27, he says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. He says, King, would you just listen to me? I have not led you wrong so far. Would you just give gravity to my words? And then he says this, Break off your sins. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar to turn away from his sin. And what he tells him is that if you will turn away from your sin, there will be a blessing. And here's what I don't want you guys to miss on a night like tonight. I want you to understand that those words that Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar are true for you. That if you would turn away from your sin, if you would break off your sin, there would be a blessing from God for you in it. I want you to understand just how dangerous sin is so that you feel the weight and the gravity of it. So that as we get to understanding God's solution to sin, it will actually be precious and valuable to you. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, break off your sins. And the question is, what is he asking him to break off? What is he asking him to stop? What is he asking him to turn away from? And so tonight, we're going to use Nebuchadnezzar as a bit of a case study to understand sin. But make no mistake, this is not going to be like a theoretical uh, exploration of what sin is. The unfortunate reality is that Nebuchadnezzar in his sin is just like us. So as we look at Nebuchadnezzar in his sin, it's not just going to be like a case study. It's also going to be like a mirror. And as we look into Nebuchadnezzar's heart, as we look into his life, as we look into his brokenness, as we look into his depravity, we are going to see ourselves reflected in his mistakes. We're going to see our own brokenness reflected in the life of another human being, another person made in the image of God, but who is just as sinful as we are. And so... I want to take you to three different places that Nebuchadnezzar expressed sin and try to understand it so that we can understand our own sin. And here's how we'll do it. Here's three expressions of sin in Nebuchadnezzar's life and in our lives. The first one is this, neglect. This is the first expression of sin. It's neglect. This is when I ignore God. Neglect is when I ignore God. What's so mind-boggling about this narrative that we see over and over and over again as we read the book of Daniel is that this king has undeniable evidence and repeated exposure to the supernatural power and the goodness of God. And over and over and over again, he acknowledges him, he knows him, and he even praises him. We see this in Daniel chapter 2. When, when the dream is revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, he says that God is superior and he's the only one who can reveal mysteries. In Daniel chapter 3, he says God is worthy of praise because he alone can save his people, like he saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then Daniel 4, he says that God is mighty and he rules forever. These are like these massive declarations that come from the lips of Nebuchadnezzar, like saying that God is awesome. 
And yet over and over and over again, after every one of these acknowledgments, he always goes back to ignoring God. He always gets back to the place where God drops off of his radar altogether. He stops thinking about him. He stops caring about him. He stops paying honor to him. And he goes back to his old ways. He goes back to doing the exact same things that he used to do. Even after all those declarations, even after paying all that lip service to the greatness and the glory and the power of God, Nebuchadnezzar still refuses to live for God. He still goes back. He still ignores God. And so what that looks like for him is he goes back to worshiping false gods. He goes back to murdering people. He goes back to persecuting those who follow him. He's filled with rage and pride all over again. And maybe, maybe you are familiar with this cycle. In fact, I, I think you could probably make a case. Um, you've heard of the phrase, right, the camp high. I mean, you, most of you guys have been to camp. You know what the camp high is? You come to Hume Lake, and you just have this come to Jesus moment, and it's like the Spirit fills your heart, and you repent from sin, and you're like, I'm going to walk with Jesus, and I'm going to resist temptation, and when I go home, I'm going to preach the gospel to my friends, and you get home, and like five minutes later, you're back to the same old things you used to do. Nebuchadnezzar is the original camp high. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar just had these spiritual experiences over and over again. He's like, wow, that's awesome. God is amazing. God is worthy of praise. And then five minutes go by and he's back to his old life. And he's just like us in this. This is the first expression of sin we see in Nebuchadnezzar's life and in our life. It's neglect of God. Now, now, what is neglect? Neglect is simply this. Neglect is refusing to pay the attention and care that you ought to pay. We see Nebuchadnezzar do this over and over and over again. In Daniel chapter 2, here's some of the places that he just gives the lip service. He says, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Remember, we've been talking this whole time. This is a battle of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar just said, your God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Hebrews, that God is the God of every God. The problem is it comes out of his mouth and it does not translate to his life. He does not live as if that is true. And in chapter 3, he says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent this angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Nebuchadnezzar goes back to neglecting and ignoring God. Neglect is refusing to pay the attention that you ought to pay. Neglect is when there's something valuable, something precious, something important in front of you, and you turn away from it. Neglect can take many forms, but sometimes neglect is even criminal. Like if you have a, if you have a child, if you, if you bear a son or a daughter, and then you decide that you are going to neglect that child, you decide that you're not going to pay them any attention, you're not going to care for them, you're not going to feed them, you will go to jail because that is your responsibility. And here's what I'm telling you. One of the primary expressions of sin is turning away from the most foundational responsibility we have, which is to pay honor to our creator. Every time that you and I are 
turning our backs against God, every time we are forgetful of God, every time we don't live for God, what we're living in is neglect. It's an expression of sin. This thing, the creator of the universe, this God who loves us and who made us, the one that we are supposed to live for, we turn away from him in neglect. And that is the first, it's the first expression of sin. And perhaps you've recognized it in your life. Perhaps there are times that you know God and acknowledge God and want to seek God and maybe even sing praises to God, but then shortly after you forget him and dishonor him with the majority of your life. Nebuchadnezzar did it. We did it because both of us are sinners. Here's the second expression. It's idolatry. This is when I displace God. So if neglect is when I ignore God, then idolatry is when I displace God. And here's what I mean. Displacing God, here's a simple definition for idolatry. Idolatry is placing anything in the position that only God deserves. Placing anything in the position that only God deserves. And Nebuchadnezzar did this in Daniel chapter 3. We talked about it last night. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1 says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, and then he gave the order in verse 5, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Idolatry is placing anything in the position that only God deserves. And it might be easy for us, reading the account of Daniel, to think to ourselves, We must not be idolatrous because chances are we are not bowing down at a physical shrine and worshiping a statue or an image. And yet the truth is that you and I, we worship idols no less. Just because we might not be doing it physically, just because there might not be a statue or a representation that we are paying homage to with the posture of our body, you and I, remember, we worship idols because worshiping idols is giving regard to anything the the way that only God deserves. It's placing anything in the position that only God deserves to occupy in our lives. So you might think, well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't worship idols. But worship is, is just this. It is giving our attention, our affection, our passion, and our priority to something. And, and I'm telling you, because you are a human being, there is something in your life right now that is getting your worship. Something occupies the first place in your affections and in your heart and in your mind and in your life. And if you ever wonder how you can identify what that thing is, just ask yourself some of these simple questions. Ask yourself, what do you spend the most time thinking and dreaming about? Where does the most of your energy go? What in this life, if it were to be taken from you or not go the way that you wanted it to do, what would cause the most devastating disappointment? Like if this got taken away, just life couldn't go on. Where do you spend your thoughts, your money, your attention, your energy? If you start to ask some of those questions and you can sift through the various things in your life and you can begin to see that which is most precious to you above all else, 
And there's only, there's only a few categories that we have, right? Humans are not that creative in the categories that we can make up for things. But we put, we put material things there. We want money, and we want clothes, and we want cars, and we want things. We, we want to be able to get more and accumulate more. We, we put relationships there. We, we seek out whether these familial relationships or romantic relationships, we, we long to have them so badly that they become the first thing in our lives. We, we long for achievements these things that we just want to accomplish and we want to get done. We want to get this grade or get into this college or win this championship or get into this club. We, we chase after it and we dream about it and we long for it. And listen, none of those things, material things are not bad in and of themselves. Achievements and relationships, they are not evil and wrong. Here's what they are. They are idols when they take the place that only God deserves. If any one of those things occupies the central place in your heart, it is in the place that God should be, and it's sin. And you and I, we do this all the time. A really famous theologian from a long time ago, John Calvin, he said, he said that the human mind is like a perpetual factory of idols. That, that what we do is we just constantly are searching for things to fix our hearts and minds upon that are not God. And that's, that's sin. If you've ever wondered what that is, if you've heard that word but not grown up reading the Bible and being taught about God and you've wondered what sin is, that, that is one of the primary expressions of it. It's idolatry. It's displacing God. It's taking him from the throne of our hearts and our lives, putting him to the side and replacing it with something else. It's what Nebuchadnezzar does and it's what we do. Here's the third expression of our sin. It's this, pride. First is neglect. This is when I ignore God. Then it's idolatry when I displace God. And then it's pride when I don't need God. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with pride. And pride, pride is this there, there's a sense in which pride is at the root of all sin because pride is the delusional belief in your own self-sufficiency. Pride is the delusional belief. It means it, means it is out of touch with reality. It means you are deceived if you believe this. Pride is the delusional belief in your own self-sufficiency that you don't need anyone or anything beyond you. And this is at the root of sin. Is It's a rejection of God because what it's saying is, I don't need you, God. Like if you go all the way back to the garden, the very beginning of the Bible tells this amazing story of a creator who spoke all things into existence and then made man and woman in his image and placed them in this beautiful garden where they could enjoy his creation. And then he gave them boundaries and said, you can have all of the joy and all of the pleasure and all of the relationship with me in the boundaries that I have set for you. And at the earliest opportunity, those created beings who were accountable to this eternal God 
they said to him, we don't need your commands. We don't need to listen to what you have to say. We will do our own thing. We don't, we don't need you intruding on our freedom. We don't need you in our lives. We don't need your commands. We don't need your authority. That is pride. It's the same pride that motivated just a few chapters later in the book of Genesis. At the Tower of Babel, this civilization came together and they said, we will build a tower so that we can reach the heavens, so that our glory will be known in all the earth. This is what pride is, and it doesn't just live in Adam and Eve. It doesn't just live in the people who built the Tower of Babel. It certainly doesn't just live in Nebuchadnezzar, who said in Daniel 4.30, the king answered and said, listen to this, is not this great Babylon? It's like Nebuchadnezzar's looking out over his kingdom, and this is what he says. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? That pride is not just in Adam and Eve. It's not just in those who built the tower. It's not just in Nebuchadnezzar. It's in us. It's in us. We have this expression of sin in our lives just like he did. You see, Nebuchadnezzar knew about God. He just didn't believe that he needed him. And this is what, this is what life can do to us, especially when you're in a position like Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had authority he had power. He had riches. There was nothing in the realm of human experience outside of his ability to get. And so he was deluded into believing in his own self-sufficiency. He looks out over his kingdom and he says, look at the glory of my majesty. Look at my mighty power. Look what I have done. And this is what you and I do Every single time we live as if we don't need God. Did you know that you don't take another breath unless God says so? God is the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything. You and I, we borrow our life from him, and we don't live for another second unless God decides it is so. And so it is the height of arrogance for you and for me to live as if we don't need him. And we do it all the time. I do it all the time, guys. On a daily basis, you and I are filled with and wrestling against pride. Though I might not have the courage to say it, I mean, come on, guys, I'm a, I'm a stinking pastor, and yet I live my life sometimes filled with pride. And if I had the guts to really say what's going on in my heart, I would say things like, why do I need to pray when I know all the answers? Why do I need to go to God's word when I'm so smart? Why do I need to depend on God when I'm so strong? 
That's the way we live. We, we ignore God. We, ne- we neglect him. We turn away from him because we're convinced we've got all the resources we need on our own. And that, my friends, is one of the most dramatic expressions of sin. We see it in Nebuchadnezzar's life and we see it in our lives. Pride is delusional. It is deceptive. And here's probably the scariest part of pride. If, pride, if I'm right in saying that pride really is at the root of all sin, which is this belief that I don't, I don't need God, so I reject him, and I dishonor him, and I disobey him, and I ignore him, if that's what pride is at its root, the most devastating thing I believe that the Bible says about pride is this. It's in James chapter 4, verse 6, and it says, God opposes the proud. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. If you want to guarantee that the ruler and the creator of heaven and earth will stand opposed to you, if you want to guarantee that he will stand against you, all you have to do is be prideful. And I don't know about you, but I don't want God squaring off against me. I would rather have God on my side fighting for me than have God across the ring fighting against me. And so we see, we see this dramatic display of the opposition of God that was retold in that narrative because what happens in Daniel chapter 4 it's wild. Those words that just came out of Daniel's uh, or Nebuchadnezzar's mouth is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. He says those words, and this is what the very next verse says. If you're looking for like an object lesson, when James says God opposes the proud, look at this. Verse 31 of Daniel chapter 4. While the words were still in the king's mouth. It's like he hadn't even finished talking yet. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, a voice of judgment, the voice of the one true and living God who stands opposed to the proud. He said this, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and he ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. That right there is a a very visceral picture of this reality that God stands opposed to sin. God stands opposed to sin to pride. For Nebuchadnezzar, it looked like him being literally driven mad. He had like a psychotic break and he turned into a person who acted like an animal. And this was one of the rulers of the most powerful empires on planet Earth. And he's out in the field eating grass like a cow. 
This is what sin does. Sin makes you mad. Sin is, sin is irrational. Sin makes no sense. If there really is a God in heaven, and because he loves us, he's given us him, himself, he's revealed himself to us, and he's given us his law, he's given us his character, he's been generous and kind and good to us, the most ridiculous and destructive thing we could possibly do is turn away from him and reject him and spit in his face and break the boundaries that he's given us, and that's what sin is. It is neglect, and it's idolatry, and it's pride. Now, I hope that you can see to this point how this is not just a problem that Nebuchadnezzar faces. This is a problem that you and I face. I think even when we hear the word sin, sometimes the very first thing that can come to our mind is someone or something out there. When we think of sin, we think of someone else. When we think of sin, we think of something else. And yet I I just need you to know tonight that the truth of God's word reveals that every single one of us deal with this problem of sin. That sin is not an out there problem. Sin is an in here problem for every single one of us. The, the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That every single one of us, that we were born with a sinful nature. And Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are children of wrath. That you and I, we are sinful. And that because of that, in our natural state, God stands opposed to us. So I just want to finish like this. I want to spend the next few moments focusing in just so that we are as clear as we possibly can be because what we've done in tracing Nebuchadnezzar's story and looking into his sin like a mirror to see, see our own sin, I hope that you have a, a more well-developed picture of what sin looks like. But now I just want to be crystal clear about what sin is. What it, we've seen an expression of sin. Now I want to understand what is the nature of sin. And so I've just got a simple definition for you that I need you to know before you leave this room, and it's this. Sin is, it's got three parts. Here's the first one. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is rebellion. Sin is revolting against the rightful authority that God has. One of the things I love about the videos that we're watching is that it represents God as a king, and he is a king. God is the rightful ruler who sits on the throne and who wears the crown and is a benevolent ruler over all of creation. He is the king. And you and I, in our sin, what we do is we rebel against that good king. We break his law. We violate his commands. We dishonor his will. This is what sin is. It's rebellion against our creator and our king. Sin is rebellion against God, and sin is rebellion against God that separates us from God. Sin is rebellion against God, and sin separates us from God. You see, the, the rebellion breaks the relationship that we have with God. 
When we decide, God, I don't need you, I'm going to live my own way, and we turn our back on him, and we neglect him, and we worship other things in place of him, what we're doing is we are fracturing the relationship that exists between us and God. We're breaking the connection between us and our creator because God will not tolerate sin in his presence. And before you go accusing God of saying, well, that's unfair, that's not right, how could you do that, God? Just remember for a moment that even our human relationships work this way. If there is someone in your life that you want to be in relationship with, and what they do is they set boundaries for you, and you repeatedly violate those boundaries, you forfeit that relationship. If someone says, hey, this is how you can speak to me, and this is how I want you to treat me, and I don't want you to do that, if, if you do not respect even the human boundaries that someone has, that person will no longer be in relationship with you. They will cease to be friends with you. They will depart from you. And that's what sin does in our relationship with God. God says, I want to be in relationship with you, but this is what it looks like. And again and again and again, we transgress those boundaries and we violate his will and his desire for our lives. And therefore, we break the relationship with God. And Isaiah 59 verse 2 says that your iniquities have created a separation between you and your God. Sin is rebellion against God that separates us from God. And perhaps the hardest truth of all is this, that rebellion in, it's rebellion against God that separates us from God and earns the wrath of God. This is what sin is and what sin does. Sin earns the wrath of God. You see, God is the source and the very definition of everything that is good and true and beautiful which means that to neglect him and to disobey him and to rebel against him is the very essence of evil. If God, is, if God is good and he himself is the very nature of good and the source of all good, then to turn against that God is itself evil. And because God is a good judge, he is committed to punishing evil. Once again, I think a human analogy is helpful here because, I mean, like literally three days ago, I was, I was on Coronado Island in, in Southern California, and I, I got in an Uber, and I was talking to my Uber driver, and he had this worldview about how, like, it was sort of a pantheistic, like God is in everything, kind of like it's no big deal. And he said, he actually said to me, he quoted the Bible to me. He very clearly did not have a biblical worldview, but he quoted the Bible to me. And, and uh, well, I, it's because I asked him, I said, do you believe there is a God? And he said, and he was like, yeah, I believe there's a God. And he said, I believe that God is love. And, and I was like, yes, Yes and amen, God is love. And then he followed it on by saying, I don't believe God punishes anyone. And here's what I, here's what I just thought to myself. 
if there was a, and this is what I said to him. I said, if there was a, if there was a human judge, God is the judge of all creation, but if there was a human judge in a courtroom and someone was brought into their courtroom and they were undeniably guilty of murder, there was video evidence, there was blood at the crime scene, there was fingerprints, it is a lock and shut case, the guy is guilty. And if that human judge looked at that guilty murderer and shrugged his shoulders and said, eh, no big deal, I'm not going to punish you, that would be a very bad judge. And God is not a bad judge. God is not so unjust as to sweep evil under the rug and pretend like it doesn't exist. God is much better than that. God is righteous, God is good, and God is just, and therefore he is committed to punishing evil. And I think when we think about evil, we're like, yes, I hope that God will punish evil but the weight lands on us when we realize that evil is not somewhere out there. Evil is somewhere in here. And that's the weight that has to land on us when we consider our sin. That because God is good, he will judge what is evil. And that means he will judge we who have done evil. Now, you might be asking, man, <laughs> Nick, this is a big bummer. I was having a great time at Hume Lake, and you're just ruining my life right now. Why are we talking about this? Why are we spending so much time talking about something that is so heavy? And here's why. It's, it's what we talked about at the beginning. If you misdiagnose the problem, or if you underestimate the problem, you will never appropriately appreciate the solution. Here's what I mean in a story there's this young guy who started attending um, our church. His name is Alex. He's 22 years old, and for most of his life, he's, he's suffered from like some stomach ulcers, which just give him like pretty frequent stomach pain, and he was having a bout of stomach pain that was bothering him, but it was kind of normal, and then it started to get a little bit worse, and so he went to his doctor, and his doctor was like, yeah, we know you have these ulcers, um, but this one seems like a little bit more severe, there's a chance it's appendicitis, so I'm just going to send you to the. I'm going to send you to the hospital and let's do a CAT scan just to make sure that it's not appendicitis. And he went to the hospital, and he laid in that tube, and they did the they did the CAT scan, and they were checking out to see if it was appendicitis. And the doctor came into his room and and said, Alex, um, you don't have appendicitis, and he's like, Oh, that's great. But the doctor said, But you do have cancer. He's 22 years old. And by happenstance, by coincidence, they were, they were looking at his appendix, but in the background of the CAT scan, they saw his kidney, and there was a very dangerous cancer in his kidney. And here's, here's the real scary thing. If his stomach pain had not driven him to get that CAT scan, the doctor, the oncologist who was treating his cancer, said he would not have felt any symptoms from this kind of cancer until it was almost too late to treat. The reason we are spending an entire session talking about sin is because if you go your whole life 
without understanding how devastating and dangerous sin is, it will be too late to treat. If you don't ever feel the weight of your sin, you will never run to God for the solution that he has provided in his son, Jesus. And so I just so badly, guys, I, I, I don't preach this message because I want to guilt trip you. I don't preach this message because I'm looking to manipulate you. I want you to know what the Bible says about the gravity and the weight of sin, and I want you to feel it so that tomorrow night, when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the best news in all the world, that there is a substitute and a savior who has paid for all of your sin, you will feel a fresh wonder and appreciation and you will run to him. There's, there's this old saying, and it's the reason I preach this message. It goes like this. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And my deepest prayer for every single one of you is that the Lord Jesus Christ would be sweet to you. And if he will be sweet to you, your sin must first be bitter to you. And so I want you to understand the problem. I want you to feel the weight of it so that when we run to the solution, you will grab onto him with the faith that you can muster and with all of the energy that he will supply to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth. God, if that doctor was to read this, the scan of my friend Alex and not tell him that he had cancer, that would be a very cruel and evil doctor. And so, God, I thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth about ourselves even when that truth is unpleasant to hear. God, I pray that even right now, your spirit would be bringing conviction to hearts in this room, that maybe even for the first time, we would acknowledge that sin is not somebody else's problem. Sin is my problem. I have rebelled against you, God. I have neglected you. I have ignored you. My relationship with you has been broken, and I deserve your wrath. I deserve your eternal judgment because you are a good judge. And so, God, I pray that we would feel the weight of it, but I pray that that weight would be very quickly released as we run to Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we cling to him to provide the salvation and the healing that we so desperately need. God, we love you. We need you. And so we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.